The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 21 to the chief musician, a psalm of David. The king shall have joy in your strength, O Lord, and in your salvation. How greatly shall he rejoice. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips, Selah. For you meet him with blessings of goodness. You set a crown of pure gold upon his head. He asked life from you, and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great in your salvation. Honor and majesty you have placed upon him. For you have made him most blessed forever. You have made him exceedingly glad in your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the mercy of the Most High he shall not be moved. Your hand will find all your enemies. Your right hand will find those who hate you. You shall make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath, and the fire shall devour them. Their offspring you shall destroy from the earth and their descendants from among the sons of men. For they intended evil against you. They devised a plot which they are not able to perform. Therefore, you will make them turn their back. You will make ready your arrows on your string toward their faces. Be exalted, O Lord, in your own strength. And we will sing praise, sing and praise your power. Okay, our sermon today, let's see here. This is, this is a really important sermon. And the reason why is because not everybody is going to stay in this church forever. And people will get upset and they'll leave or they'll move and they'll leave. And, you know, whatever, whatever reason, um, you will hopefully, when you leave, which hopefully that never happens, you stay here with us forever. But if you leave for whatever reason, you, you will hopefully find another church and not let that go by the wayside, okay? And should you say, I need to go to another church, if you're not grounded in doctrine, you see a church down the road and it says, oh, look, there's this beautiful church right next to Four More all in the line, like you go out on um, Clark Road and you've got the Seventh-day Adventist and you've got this and you've got this and you've got this. And you say, well, let's try the Seventh-day Adventist church. Why is that wrong? What are they doing that is inappropriate? Well, unless you know the law of the Sabbath, you're not going to know why you shouldn't go to that church or why you shouldn't go to a messianic synagogue that mandates a Sabbath day uh, worship. If they have it on Sabbath, it doesn't make any difference at all. Let me read you something before I get into the sermon text. Uh, where is it? It's Romans chapter 14. Yeah. Uh, verse 5 says, One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. There's no requirement to worship on any day of the week or every day of the week in Scripture. But if you do it because you believe you have to do it, you're setting aside the law, you are re you are, I'm sorry, you're setting aside grace and you are reintroducing the law into your theology. Seventh-day Adventists do this. Some of these Hebrew Roots movements groups do this. They set aside the grace of God and they thus are debtors to the entire law, something they can never do. It is a self-condemning act. Now, if you're already saved, you're not going to lose your salvation, but you will lose your rewards for failing to trust in the grace of Christ. That's why this is such an important sermon. And uh, let me read you the sermon text, Exodus 31, verses 12 through 18. 
And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbath you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth. And on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. And when he made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. We've already seen several sermons on the Sabbath, okay? It's a theme which one would think would simply just dry up so that all we would be doing is repeating the same old thing. However, today's passage is completely different than those of the past, such as in Exodus 16, verses 22 through 26, which is where the Sabbath was introduced into Scripture, or Exodus 20, which dealt with the Ten Commandments, including the Sabbath. This passage today takes us in an entirely different direction, and yet it fully supports those and all the other passages which deal with the Sabbath. It is a temporary institution which finds its true meaning in Christ. In him, the picture made by the Sabbath is fulfilled, and thus the Sabbath requirement is ended. Along with the new information also comes a new chiasm, which I discovered while doing this sermon. You've got it in your hands there right now. I'm going to lay it out for you, and at times I'm going to refer to it during the sermon. Chiasms give us hidden structures which reveal what God is thinking. They help us to properly analyze difficult passages and theological concepts, and they reveal what their true meaning is. And this chiasm is no different. If you look at it, I entitled it The Sabbath Rest. Okay, subtitle assigned between the Lord and Israel. Okay, are we Israel? Well, if you're a Reformed theologian, yeah, we are, but no, we're not. We're dispensationalists, and we are not Israel. So this is a sign between the Lord and Israel. Okay, A, top A, bottom A, surely my Sabbath you shall keep. Underline my Sabbath if you have a pen. A, at the bottom, on the seventh day, he, it's my Sabbath, okay, he rested and was refreshed. He's having a Sabbath, and you, Israel, shall surely my Sabbath keep. Okay, B, for it is a sign between me and you. Okay, B, at the bottom, it is a sign between me and the children of Israel. Are we Israel? If we're Reformed theologians, yes, but we're not. We're dispensationalists. Okay. C, throughout your generations. C, throughout your generations as a perpetual covenant. D, you shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, uh, for it is holy to you. D, therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath. Are we the children of Israel? Is anybody here from the tribe of Reuben? Judah? Gad? Naphtali? Asher? Anybody? Okay, no. All right. Okay, yes. Um, E, everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. E, he shall surely be put to death. F, for whoever does any work on it. F, whoever does any work on the Sabbath day. X, work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. 
Marvelous patterns, aren't they? Chiasms are wonderful things that God has put into Scripture. And as you're reading, if you think you've read something already, go back and look for one because the Bible is filled with them. That thing's been sitting in there for 3,500 years, and I found it about 10 weeks ago when I typed up this sermon. And how many other uh, chiasms have we found in the past two or three years? I mean, dozens and dozens. They're everywhere, okay? You wait for a sermon to come. Maybe it's next week or it's coming soon. I got one. We're going to be in that chiasm for about five weeks worth of sermons. It spans two chapters, okay? As we read read the sermon text earlier, as we read it, maybe you thought, why is the Lord repeating the same thing again and again? Well, now you know. The Lord is revealing truths about this most important weekly day which occurred in the lives of Israel of old. Okay? Our text first today comes from Hebrews chapter 3. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me and tried me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they are always going astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Before we even start with the sermon, we need to be reminded that the Sabbath was a part of the law of Moses. The law of Moses is, according to the book of Hebrews, obsolete, annulled, and set aside. It is, according to Paul in the book of Colossians, nailed to the cross. We are not Sabbatarians at the superior word. We do not observe an annulled precept from an annulled law in order to be pleasing to God. Okay? If you think of the law, where, where is it? I'm not talking about now, today. I'm talking about in Israel. Where was the law kept? No, the tablets. Where was it kept? In the ark. The ark, as we saw in these sermons, is a picture of Christ. He embodies the law. He fulfilled that law. And what went on top of the ark of the, mercy, uh, of the covenant? The mercy seat. Okay? And what was put on the mercy seat every year on the Day of Atonement? Blood. Picturing the blood of Christ. The law is under the blood. It is fulfilled. It is over. It is done. These pictures were given to us for a very specific reason over these past many sermons. Okay? We need to remember this precept. Instead of observing a law or worshiping under the law, we trust in the work of Christ, and we rest in his finished work, plain and simple, and that is all there is to it. Working deeds of the law in order to attempt to be right with God will only lead to one sad end, which is separation from God. It is, as I said earlier, a self-condemning act. This truth and quite a few others are poignantly highlighted in today's verses. So let's pay heed to what's revealed there in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today. The first is a sign between me and you. It's verses 12 through 14. Verse 12, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Ve'yomer Yehovah el Moshe lemor. And said the Lord to Moses, saying, These words introduce the second major section of this chapter. The first began in verse 1 with a very similar phrase. With just a single word of difference, this second section now opens. What is most notable about it is that it will close out the Lord's discourse concerning the instruction for the tabernacle and the priestly ordination, which began in verse 25-1. In all, these six chapters then have comprised 22 individual sermons, which have revealed hundreds, if not thousands, of pictures of Jesus Christ. 
There has been an amazing amount of information revealed in this 40-day trip up the mountain by Moses. Even 3,500 years later, new insights continue to come out of these six chapters comprised of 243 verses, such as the chiasm which finally came forth at this time. Verse 13, speak also to the children of Israel, saying, surely my Sabbaths you shall keep. The final section of the instructions to Moses seems to be completely out of place. Everything to this point concerning his time on the mountain has been in regard to the building of the tabernacle and its associated rites and services. And suddenly the law of the Sabbath is reintroduced. As I said, it was already mentioned in chapter 16 where it was first introduced. It was then next mentioned in the giving of the Ten Commandments, specifically the fourth of them. Those two incidents would seem to suffice concerning this particular observance. And yet, before closing out his highly detailed discourse, these six verses are suddenly given. After them will be one more verse concerning the tablets of the Ten Commandments, and the chapter will close. Because of this seemingly unusual placement of these seemingly out-of-context verses, several reasons have been suggested for their inclusion now. And they are very wise scholars that I'm going to quote right here. The first is Quartz. This is his reason. The law of the Sabbath held a particularly prominent place in the Ten Commandments, and so it is highlighted before they are given to Moses. The second is from the scholar Kalish, that the holy service in the tabernacle could not supersede the observance of the Sabbath, but derived from that observance its true value. The third is from Albert Barnes, somebody that I respect immensely that the penal edict was especially introduced as a caution in reference to the construction of the tabernacle, lest the people in their zeal to carry out the work should be tempted to break the divine law for the observance of the day. Fourth, from Charles Ellicott, hitherto the Sabbath has been in the main a positive enactment intended to test obedience. Now it was elevated into a sacramental sign between God and his people. Having become a sign, it required to be guarded by a new sanction, and this was done by assigning the death penalty to any infraction of the law of the Sabbath observance. And the fifth option, none of the above, Charlie Garrett. The, <laughs> the first reason that the Sabbath held an especially prominent place within the Ten Commandments is wholly unjustified. Elevating the Sabbath above the other nine has led to both heresy and the establishment of aberrant cults within Christianity that is neither stated in nor can it be inferred from Scripture. The second reason, that the service in the tabernacle could not supersede the observance of the Sabbath would mean that the rites of the tabernacle would have to be suspended every Sabbath. And yet the directions for the service of the tabernacle mandate that they be conducted without interruption every day of the week. Even the ordination of Aaron and his sons was to continue on through Sabbath days. The third reason, that of the people neglecting the Sabbath to work on the tabernacle is just wrong. The Sabbath law has been given. For them to assume that they could work on the tabernacle in order to get it finished wasn't mentioned by the Lord during the instruction of the six chapters. In other words, the Sabbath requirement was named at the giving of the Ten Commandments. It was mandated and expected to be kept just as all ten were. And we're going to have an example of that after he comes down the mountain to prove that precept. The last view that it was because it was an elevated sacramental sign between God and the people is a correct precept. 
But that doesn't explain the placement of it here, along with the instructions for the tabernacle. It simply provides an explanation for the penalty of death for a violation of the Sabbath, and it goes no further. The issue is, why has the Sabbath been placed here at this time after giving minute instructions for the building of the tabernacle and just prior to the physical handing over of the Ten Commandments? That is the relevant question. The answer is that if you survive until the end of this sermon, you will be told the reason. In the meantime, you can chew on it as we go through the rest of these verses, and you can see if you can come to the correct answer, okay? As far as the use of the word Shabbat or Sabbath here, it is the first time in the Bible that the term Shabbat Tote or my Sabbaths is found in Scripture. First, it shows the personal nature of the Sabbath in relation to the Lord. In observing the Sabbath, there is a direct connection to God's rest, which is recorded in Genesis chapter 2 with these words, Thus the heavens and the earth and all of the host of them were finished, and on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all of his work which God had created and made. Second, the word is in the plural, Sabbaths, okay, because they were a regular occurrence each week throughout the year. This is why Paul uses the exact same term when speaking of Sabbaths in Colossians 2, verse 16. They are many, and they are personal to the Lord. This rest of God is so important to him that it will bear several unique connotations and requirements. The first is, verse 13 continues, for it is a sign between me and you. The Sabbath is to be a sign between the Lord and his people. The word for sign here is ot. It comes from the verb ava, which means to sign or to mark or to describe with a mark. Thus, this type of sign is something that points to something else. It can point back to a memorial, which represents a particular occurrence. It can point forward to something anticipated, and it can reflect something that exists, which is only highlighted by the sign itself. In other words, a signature on an important document highlights the authority of the one signing the document. The Sabbath, then, is merely a sign intended to highlight a reality which exists already, or which is to be anticipated at some point in the future. Further, this sign is not a temporary thing. Rather, it was intended to remain, verse 13 continues, throughout your generations. This exact same phrase, le doro tehem, or throughout your generations, has already been used nine times. Looking at those earlier instances will hopefully reveal a truth to you concerning the reason for the placement of this passage right now. So far, it has been used when speaking of the sign of circumcision which was given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. It was used when speaking of the Passover in Exodus chapter 12. It was used concerning the keeping of an omer of manna in Exodus 16. It was used in the passage concerning the daily offerings at morning and between the evenings in Exodus 29. It was used in connection with the burning of incense on the altar of incense at morning and between the evenings in Exodus 30. And finally, it was used concerning the use of the holy anointing oil in Exodus 30. We're talking about the phrase throughout your generations, okay? Of these nine references to something being done throughout your generations, what is the common element? Well, let's ask ourselves, are we still required to be circumcised? 
No. In fact, Paul says that if we do that in order to be justified by the law, then we are debtors to the entire law. It is a self-condemning act. Circumcision only pointed to the coming of Christ. Okay? Are we required to observe the Passover? No. For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Are we still holding on to a golden jar of manna? No. Why? Because Christ has come. He said this in John 6. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life, which the manna only pictured. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven and that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Thank God for Jesus. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. What about the daily sacrifices? What about the offering of incense and the holy anointing oil? What is the common element between all of them? The common element is Christ. None of those previous things that were to be le doro tehem or throughout your generations was permanent. Not one of them. They were given in anticipation of Christ. Verse 13 continues, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. The Sabbath was a sign to be observed throughout the generations of Israel to point to something else. It was given as a sign for the people of Israel to know that it was Jehovah who sanctified them. Just as he blessed and sanctified the seventh day after his creative efforts in Genesis, the people of Israel were to know that they were sanctified by that same God. In observing his rest, they were intimately connected to him and sanctified by him. In the words of the Bible connected to the Sabbath, we find a most important truth. First, the Sabbath is given in Exodus 20, verse 11. That's the Ten Commandments based on God's creative efforts. Okay, but in Deuteronomy 5, verse 15, which is also the re-giving of the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath is given based on God's act of redemption. And in this verse right here, it is tied into God's work of sanctification. In other words, the work of all three of the members of the Trinity are tied up in the Sabbath. God the Creator, God the Redeemer, and God the Sanctifier. Matthew Poole notes it this way. He says, the Sabbath owns the Lord as our creator and as our redeemer and as our sanctifier. And therefore, it is no wonder God so severely enjoins the sanctification of the Sabbath and punisheth the neglect of it, being a tacit renouncing or disowning of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Verse 14, you shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy to you. Of these words, Joseph Benson says, it is designed for your benefit as well as for God's honor. It shall be accounted holy by you. It is the Lord who sanctifies Israel. The Sabbath is the property of God. For Israel, it is the inheritance of God. Therefore, Israel was instructed to keep the Sabbath. The directions for the construction, services, and rites of the sanctuary were based on works. They were to work towards the Sabbath each week and then rest in honor of the works which were performed, even though the priest's works continued during the Sabbath days. Verse 14 continues, everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. To profane the Sabbath means to defile it. That which would defile the Sabbath was defined in the Ten Commandments. Here's what it said. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. Violating these and any other prohibitions which will be given would then be considered profaning the Sabbath. 
However, as we saw in a recent sermon, the priest's work continued throughout the Sabbath, and yet they were held guiltless. They did not profane the Sabbath. Verse 14 continues, For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from his people, from among his people. A distinction is especially made between being put to death and being cut off from the people. A person could be cut off from the people without being put to death. The two are not synonymous. A person who offended in such a way as to put himself out of the covenant was considered an outlaw. He was to be cut off from his people. When the offense affected the nation as a whole, then the person was to be put to death. When a person defiled the Sabbath day, they actually caused a lot more harm than might be realized. If nothing was done about his actions, it might spur others on to jealousy who were not making the same amount of money from this guy who profited off of the Sabbath. Further, it would then spur them on to profane the Sabbath as well, knowing that nothing would be done about their actions. Eventually, the infection would spread and the people in general would come to this same conclusion. What was a sign to the people would cease being a sign. They would no longer know that it was the Lord who sanctified them. They would no longer fear the Lord and they would quickly turn from him to profane worship. And this will be noted later today from a passage in Nehemiah. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. In me, you shall find your rest. What I look for is faith that is true. And in this, I shall put you to the test. I am the Lord. Pay heed unto me for I will give you a day of rest. If you will simply trust, you will see that in my presence you will be eternally blessed. Come unto me, you who are weary, and in my presence there will be peaceful rest. Come unto me, leave your life so dreary, if the land of paradise restored is your hope-filled quest. Our second thought today is a Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. It's verses 15 through 17. Verse 15, work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. These words of verse 15 form the middle of the chiasm. The term Shabbat, Shabbaton, or rest of restfulness, gives the idea of complete restfulness. The pulpit commentary translates this as, but in the seventh is complete rest. These words, Shabbat, Shabbaton, are a particular term which are only used seven times in Scripture. It is applied to the Sabbath here and two other times, to the Day of Atonement twice in Leviticus, and to the sabbatical year in the book of Leviticus. Each of these is only a prefiguring shadow of the work of Jesus Christ. That the term is mentioned seven times shows us the spiritual perfection of Christ's work. The repetition of Shabbat in Shabbat Shabbaton using an abstract form of a fixed noun gives the idea of that which is superlative. Thus, the term high Sabbath is used of it in John's gospel. There it says this, therefore, because it was the preparation day that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath for that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. It was a Sabbath, but it also occurred in conjunction with another feast day. Thus, John highlighted the day. It truly was the Lord's Sabbath as he was secreted away in a cave to rest after his great time of work culminating in what we know as the Passion. In this, it needs to be noted that the life of Israel was working towards a Sabbath. As the verse says, work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath of rest. Israel worked and then rested, just as God worked and then rested. Six followed by one. Israel was to work and then rest. Six 
followed by one. Verse 15 continues, whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. With these words, the chiasm begins its backward descent from the high point of the previous words. This clause forms two separate parts of the chiasm. The first is that of working on the Sabbath. The second is that of being put to death. The sequence of thought is this. One, the infraction, working on the Sabbath. Two, the penalty, mot yumat, dying he shall die. Think about the structure of the chiasm. Line D is an explanatory sentence. Line E is the penalty for the infraction. Line F is what the infraction is. The first half of the chiasm explains the requirement. It then gives the naming of the punishment first and then the reason for the punishment. The second half of the chiasm does the opposite. It gives the reason for the punishment, then the naming of the punishment, and then the explanatory basis for the sequence. The middle is the anchor of these two halves. What is the Lord showing us? If it is about the work of Christ, as we know it is, then there is a reason for this chiastic structure. Keep thinking. The sermon is half over now. Until we finish, let's continue analyzing, though. The severity of the punishment, which was mandated, brings a few thoughts to mind. The first is, was this punishment ever meted out? Do we know if anybody was ever killed for violating the Sabbath in Scripture? The answer is yes, it was. It is a common thing in the Bible for a precept to be laid out and then for an example of punishment for violation to be noted. For the Sabbath, the punishment is recorded in Numbers chapter 14. Here's what it says. Now, when the child, while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him under guard because it had not been explained what should be done to him. Then the Lord said to Moses, the man must surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. So as the Lord commanded Moses, all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him with stones, and he died. The second question is, are all violations of this standard, which are noted in Scripture, handled with the same punishment? The answer is no. In Nehemiah 13, 15, we read this. In those days when I saw the people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath, so they're violating the Sabbath, and bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, and I warned them about the day on which they were selling provisions. Everybody was guilty. Did Nehemiah stone the entire group of people? No. The third question is, are we required today to observe the Sabbath? Now, be careful because people say, well, Sunday is our Sabbath. No. The Sabbath is a Saturday. It has nothing to do with Sunday worship, okay? So you have to ask yourself, are we required to observe a Sabbath? If so, what are we all doing in church on Sunday instead of Saturday? That will be answered later. The fourth question is, for those who claim that a Sabbath is still in effect, okay, meaning the Jews and aberrant cults like the Seventh-day Adventists and various Messianic groups, why are they mandating the word of the Lord concerning the Sabbath, but not upholding the word of the Lord by putting their Sabbath breakers to death? Because they're violating the Torah by not doing so, okay? Is their disobedience in this any less damaging than failing to adhere to the requirement of the Sabbath itself? You have to answer these questions in order to understand what's going on. Verse 16, therefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath. These words correspond to line D on the chiasm. The word therefore simply says and in the Hebrew. The sentence, although explanatory, is more a reaffirmation of the importance of the requirement than being an overall explanation of what has thus far been said. 
Israel is again commanded to keep the Sabbath and to observe the Sabbath. The repetition is a stress in itself. The honoring of the Sabbath was to be as important to them as was life in the day itself. We cherish today with a capital T because it is the day that we are in. It is the moment in which we exist. The observance of the Sabbath was to be just as important and cherished as that state of existence. To understand this, I can give an example of what Jim and I do every single Saturday of our lives. Every Saturday, the two of us, along with Tom Alley, do mission work in the projects. At times, other people come along with us. It is not their Saturday except for the Saturday that they come. However, for Tom, Jim, and me, it is our Saturday. To not be there, to not be there is the exception for us. For any others, to be there is the exception for them. Israel's Saturday was to be their Sabbath without exception. And it was to be, verse 16 continues, throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. These words correspond to line C on the chiasm. Again, the idea of the Sabbath was to continue on for the generations to come. However, as we saw earlier, the idea of something continuing throughout the generations does not mean eternally. There is a point where the practice of these generations was to end. As long as it was in force, it was, however, to be berit olam, or a covenant perpetual. As long as the generations to whom this requirement was assigned, and as long as it was in existence, the requirement stood. The covenant was made at Sinai, and it remained in effect until it was superseded by the new covenant. The word olam, or perpetual, gives the idea of to the vanishing point. Whatever point that was, it was to continue. The same term, berit olam, because people will say, well, this was a covenant perpetual, okay? And they'll say, because of that, it has to be observed forever. The same term, berit olam, or covenant perpetual, was given to guess who? Abraham concerning circumcision. We've already decided, at least in this church, that we're not required to be circumcised. In fact, Paul rallies against it in the book of Galatians. He said, don't do this, because if you do, you're setting aside the grace of Christ, well, if it's a burrito lam for circumcision and it's burrito lam for the Sabbath, then we have a parallel there. It is done. Verse 17, it is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. These words correspond to line B on the chiasm. We continue to move away from that middle anchor verse, but the precept remains the same. The rest of the Sabbath is to be an ot, a sign. A sign, as I said, points to something else. It is not the thing itself, but stands as representative of the thing. The rest was to be this sign, and it was to be so until the vanishing point. Verse 17 continues, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth. This is not included in the chiasm, but it explains the final line. In order for there to be rest, there was first work. As God worked six days in creating, Israel was to work six days with the creation. The six days were intended to lead to the anticipated seventh day. Verse 17 continues, And on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. On the seventh day the Lord rested. Without a doubt, the Lord, meaning Jehovah, has been seen countless times already to be who? Jesus. All right. He is the incarnate word of God. He is the Lord in the flesh. In his creative efforts, he made the heavens and the earth, and then he rested. And along with that, it says he was refreshed. The word is nafash. Literally, he <sighs> took his breath. 
This is the only time that this word is used in this remarkable way in the Bible as being ascribed to the Lord. After the immense work of creation, the Lord took time to simply catch his breath and to admire the handiwork which he had so marvelously brought into existence. The connection between this line of the chiasm and the first line is that the Sabbath which the Lord claims is his, and it is the seventh day on which he took his rest. The two are intimately and intricately tied together. A time of rest for the weary soul. A time to stop and contemplate Jesus, our Lord, our God, our aim, our goal, the longing desire for each of us. To rest in him, sweet and sublime. To be still in his presence, safe and secure. For the ages of ages, for all time, blessed assurance, holy and pure. Oh, to know Christ and to seek him more. To ponder his majesty as together we rest. Come to him, all you weak, weary, and poor. Find peace and joy in his comfort. Be blessed. Our third thought today is the tablets of the testimony. Verse 18. Verse 18, and when he had made an end of speaking with them on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony. Everything that has been presented since Exodus 25, verse 1, has been for the reception of these two tablets. Everything. Everything. After the call for the people to provide the materials, the first thing that was described to Moses was the construction of the Ark of the Testimony and then the mercy seat. In verse 25, 16, After the details for the construction of the ark, it said this, and you shall put into the ark the testimony which I gave you. I already explained that to you. Then again, in verse 25, 21, after the details were given for the mercy seat, the Lord said, you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark and in the ark, you shall put the testimony that I will give you. Every single thing that was described for the purpose of building a tabernacle and a sanctuary for these stone tablets And only for that, everything that we've seen is for that purpose alone. And then for the conduct of the services and the rites which are associated with that sanctuary, all servicing the spot where the ark is. With that speaking for instruction now complete, it says that the tablets were then given to Moses. These tablets were, verse 18 continues, tablets of stone. Luchot eben, tablets of stone. The fact that they are stone is to give the idea of permanence. What is written on them is fixed and it is unchanging. That there were two tablets shows something more though. Two in the Bible is the number of difference. In the number, there is a contrast and yet there is a confirmation. The precepts of the Ten Commandments fall under two distinct categories. The first five follow a pattern of filial obedience as children to their parents. The first four were directed to God, but in them and in keeping them, they were as children honoring their heavenly father. The fifth was specifically in honoring one's parents. The second set of five deals with interpersonal relationships between man and his fellow man. The contents of these tablets contrast, and yet they confirm God's expectations for man. These two tablets, which are made of stone and which are to be secreted away in the ark, also have another defining characteristic. They were, verse 18 finishes, written with the finger of God. The tablets themselves were made by God, and the writing upon them, which was set in stone, was written by God. They are the law of God, which is set and unchanging. Once written, they are set, fixed, and complete. There were 172 words which were detailed for God's expectations for man to live in his presence. However, that they were stone also showed that they could be broken. 
the words would still be there, but they would be violated if broken. And in fact, Moses will walk down the mountain. He's going to hold them over his head and he's going to throw them and he's going to break them. And so a second set will need to be made. However, the second set is going to be made not by God, but by Moses. This is recorded in Exodus 34, verse 1. The Lord says to Moses, cut two tablets of stone like the first ones, and I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Later in the same chapter, the Lord writes on the new tablets. Here's what it says in Exodus 34, 28. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. In this, we're given a picture of our spiritual state. The laws are permanent, but are capable of being broken. And in fact, God knew that man would break them. God created Adam, pictured by the first set of tablets, and Adam broke God's law. Moses made the second, which pictures Christ coming from the stream of humanity, and yet he never broke God's law. In both, the law was written by God, but only in Christ does the law remain unbroken. Adam Clark at least partially picked up on this when he wrote concerning the giving of these tablets to Moses. It is evident, therefore, that this writing was properly and literally the writing of God himself. God wrote now on tablets of stone what he had originally written on the heart of man, and in mercy he placed that before his eyes, which by sin had been obliterated from his soul. And by this he shows us what by the Spirit of Christ must be rewritten in the mind. The giving of this law at the end of the directions for the sanctuary is the fulfillment of what the sanctuary anticipated. All of the details look forward to Christ, but without the law which was fulfilled by Christ, there would be an eternal disconnect between God and man. Only when this law was placed within the ark and covered by the mercy seat could there then be a restoration of that fellowship which was lost in Adam. In the pages of the Bible, we are hardly there yet, but in type, shadow, and picture, we are getting there with each new passage which speaks of Christ and which is leading us right to him. And so this passage and the chapter close out with these final words, but we're still missing something. We have not yet correctly answered the question which has eluded those great scholars that we cited earlier. Why? Why was the seemingly disconnected subject of the Sabbath placed here in the overall theme of the preparation for the sanctuary? A guy named John Lang came very close to answering this enigma when he gave us these words. He said, it should be observed that in chapter 35, the command respecting the Sabbath recurs again. And this time it precedes the order concerning the erection of the tabernacle. So we've got the giving of the instructions for it and then the giving of the Sabbath law. And then before they erect it, he gives the Sabbath law again. He says the Sabbath belonged as essentially to the tabernacle and the temple as the Christian Sunday to Christian worship, a sign between me and you. Just after receiving the details of the sanctuary from the Lord, the subject of the Sabbath is brought up. And then just prior to Moses conveying the details of the sanctuary, which he received, he will say this to the people. These are the words which the Lord has commanded you to do. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh day shall be a holy day for you, a Sabbath of rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire throughout your dwellings on the Sabbath day. And then he gives the instruction for the tabernacle. The Sabbath is being intricately and intimately tied into the sanctuary. The sanctuary is where the Lord is to reside. It signifies that he is dwelling among the people. 
The greatest punishment of all for Israel was exile from the presence of the Lord. But this is exactly what was promised for disobedience. In that promise, the Lord states the following in Leviticus chapter 26. He says, I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you. Your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate and you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall rest for the time it did not rest on your Sabbaths when you dwelt in it. The reason for the Sabbath's inclusion here is because it, like every other detail which has been given in these past six chapters, ultimately points to Christ, his person, and his work for us. The chiasm itself hints at this. In the old covenant, man worked and then he rested. In the new covenant, man rests and then he works. A picture is made of the process of salvation in the two dispensations. Israel worked six days and then rested on the Sabbath. It was in anticipation of the time of rest which lay ahead when all things would be restored. With Christ's coming, we rest on the first day of the week in honor of his finished work. And then we conduct our work week. Think of our rest in Christ and then our going out and doing good stuff for Christ for all of eternity. He did the rest for us. This is why the first half of the chiasm, it gives line E, the penalty, death, and then line F gives the reason for the penalty, working on the Sabbath. Whereas in the second half of the chiasm, the order is reversed. First, it notes the reason for the penalty, working, and then it is given the penalty, death. Our rest is in Christ and what he has done. We have died to the law. We now live in Christ. If we work in an attempt to please God, we are cut off from God. That's what Paul says in the book of Galatians. But if we accept Christ's work, we are saved by grace and through faith. Works are excluded. They can only condemn us. They can't save us. The book of Hebrews explains this rest of God in great detail. In chapter 4, we read these words. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, remember, who is he writing to in the book of Hebrews? Hebrews, that's right. Since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest. That's right. As he has said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Speaking of those who had been disobedient, the word says that they shall not enter my rest. But for those who have believed, verse 3 says, for those who have believed do enter that rest. Everything about the sanctuary centers on Jesus Christ. All of it points to our return to Eden and into God's rest, which is from the foundation of the world. Now, by faith in Christ, we do enter that rest. Like the sanctuary itself, the Sabbath is obsolete because Christ has come. This then explains why the Sabbath is included in the sanctuary instructions. It is a part of the rites of the law. The law is fulfilled. It is set aside. Because of this, works are excluded. And for those Jews who have missed the grace train, to this day, they're still working, having failed to trust in Christ. They exist in this new dispensation, that of grace, and thus they are cut off from his provision. However, 
The Bible tells us of their coming day of restoration. They will finally, after 2,000 years, call on him as a nation. They will be brought into the new covenant and they will enter their time of rest. This is what we call the millennium. In this, we see that the Sabbath is a sign between the Lord and Israel. That's why it says Israel in there. It's not a sign between us and the church. The great Sabbath is coming in the final dispensation of time as we know it. The world has been at war. It's been in strife for 6,000 years. But when the nation of Israel calls out for their Messiah, he will return to them. The Sabbath is a sign between the Lord and Israel because it pictures something else. It pictures that truly wondrous time on earth when wars will cease, where, as Isaiah says, the wolf shall also dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This then explains the rare term of verse 18, nafash, literally, and he took his breath. The Lord will sit on his throne in Jerusalem, and he will take his breath his work will be fully complete in the restoration of all things for that marvelous millennial period. This, however, also explains why the priests were held guiltless even when working on the Sabbath. It pictures Christ's continued role at all times as our great high priest. The priests of old only pointed to the true priest, Christ. Insightfully, Matthew Poole shows that the Sabbath of Israel was a fivefold sign to the people of Israel. Listen to what he says. First, it was commemorative of God's creation of and dominion over all the other things. Two, it was indicative, showing that they were made to be holy and that their sanctification can be had from none but from God. Three, it was distinctive, whereby they owned themselves to be the Lord's peculiar people. Four, it was prefigurative. This is the one that we need to remember of that rest which Christ should purchase for them. And five, confirmative, both assuring them of God's goodwill to them and that as he blessed the Sabbath for their sakes, so he would bless them in the holy use of it with temporal, spiritual, and everlasting blessings. He noted that it was only prefigurative of Christ and the rest that he would purchase for them. We're still waiting on that day when they will see this, but maybe one of you has yet to receive it as well. He's already done all of the work. All we need to do is simply reach out by faith and grab it. If you're here and you feel that you have to somehow merit God's favor by some work or another, the Bible shows that you have missed the mark. God has done the work in Christ. Trust in that and be found pleasing to God by simple belief in his mighty deeds accomplished by faith in Christ just for you. Then I say this because I can't tell you how many times I've had people email me at my website or on posts on YouTube and condemn me to hell because I'm not a Sabbatarian. I don't observe the Sabbath. They say, you need to observe the Sabbath or you're going to go to hell. And that is putting the work after Christ's work. That's why we must first rest in Christ and then do our good works for the Lord. But I can't tell you how many times that has happened in the past 10 or 15 years. They will jump all over you and they have no idea what God is trying to tell them. No idea at all the importance of the work of Jesus Christ, that we rest in that and only in that. And then we can do all the good stuff in the world for rewards on the other side of what he did. You understand that? Everybody got that? Okay. 
So let me tell those Sabbatarians and anybody else out there that's still trying to work their way to heaven that you cannot do it, that Christ has done the work. He is the one that came out of heaven's realm and he was without sin and he lived the perfect life that you and I cannot live. And then he gave his life up in exchange for our sins. It's that simple. It's pictured by the Ark of the Covenant with the two tablets of the law, which we could never fulfill. So why even try and not saying not to obey him? Don't get me wrong. But I'm saying to attempt to be right before God because of those, it's secreted away in him. He is the fulfillment of that law. And then he gave his life up on the cross of Calvary. And that blood is picturing the blood that the high priest put on that mercy seat. The law is under it. It is done. The rest is finished. He spent his Saturday after the cross of Calvary on Friday resting in a cave. And then he came out on Sunday to show us the rest is complete. Now you can trust in me. This is what Christ did for us. You cannot earn your way to heaven. And if you try through circumcision, through a Sabbath observance or mandating the feasts of the Lord or any other thing, you stand opposed to God because you say that what Jesus Christ did was insufficient to save you. And you are condemned and you will never, never, never see God's face because of that. You want to observe a Sabbath day? Go ahead. You want to observe a Wednesday? Go ahead. I don't care. Paul says in Romans 14, 5, you observe to the Lord any day or all days or no day. I haven't taken a single day off in years and years and years. Literally, I haven't taken one day off. I work every day. And I am pleased to be called a child of God because of what Christ did for me. I rest in him always. I talk to him always. I am saved by him. And there's nothing I need to do in order to be pleasing to him but exercise that faith. And any deed I have is faith in him. So don't let people misguide you on this. This is the, one of the most important precepts that you will hear. Because when you leave this church, if you leave it, you move up to Minot, North Dakota or something, you have to know the right church to get into. You have to be aware of this. And you have to tell people these things. Because there are people that butt their heads over this their whole life. It's that important is to understand proper theology and understand what Jesus Christ has done. It is finished. Thank you. It is done. Our closing verse comes from Colossians 2, 16 and 17. It has nothing to do with the Sabbath day. Okay, that's a lie. It has everything to do with that. <laughs> Listen to this very carefully because remember it said my Sabbath, Shabbatote, my Sabbath, plural. Okay, guess what Paul uses? The same term in Colossians 2, 16 and 17 so that you wouldn't miss this mark. And yet people miss it all the time and they deny what this says. So let no one judge you in food, pork chop anybody, or drink, want a glass of whatever, okay? Or regarding a festival, that means one of the feast days of the Lord, Passover, Yom Teruah, Day of Atonement, whatever day it is, there's seven of those days, okay? Or a new moon, that was their observance on the first day of the month, they had to have a new moon celebration. Or Sabbaths, that's speaking of the annual Sabbaths, the 52 of them throughout the year. Let no one judge you in those things, which are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance is of Christ. Okay? Don't ever forget where that is. Even if you don't remember those verses, remember where that is. Colossians 2, 16 and 17, Romans 14, 5, and Hebrews 4, 3. These verses are explicit in what they say about the Sabbath. I, I'm almost shaking now because I get so upset at this particular issue when somebody tells you, you're going to go to hell. If It's like, you're going to go to hell if you don't use the King James Version. And let me tell you something. The Bible never says in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever reads the King James Version and believes in Jesus Christ <laughs> will not perish but have everlasting life. It doesn't say that, okay? 
add in any of the peevish doctrines that people have. Okay, here's another one. Not being saved after the rapture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him and is saved before the rapture shall not perish but have everlasting life. Whatever your pet peeve is, insert it into John 3.16 and if it doesn't fit, then it's not right. Stick to scripture. Oh boy, I'm all fired up right now. My heart is just, it's going this fast. Next week we have Exodus 32 verses 1 through 10. Worshiping anything but the Lord will leave you barren. It's entitled the golden calf, the testing of Aaron. That'll be our 89th Exodus sermon, okay? And I'll tell you this, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you, right in the superior word, getting proper doctrine about the Sabbath. I might blow it somewhere else, but this is it, okay? Don't let anybody push you otherwise. He has you exactly where he wants you, and he has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters, and he can lead you right through it on dry ground. And so follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? Real short poem today, The Law of the Sabbath. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, these are the words he was relaying. Speak also to the children of Israel saying, surely my Sabbath you shall keep, so shall it be. For it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations as commanded by me, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you and so pay heed to my word. You shall keep the Sabbath therefore, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. This is what you are to do. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people, so to you I submit. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall be put to death according to my word. Therefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, so shall they do, to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant, a covenant between me and you." It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. Thus we are enmeshed. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And when he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, Moses could no longer linger. He gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with God's finger. Oh God, again we come to your word to search it out for what you would have of us expect. And in so searching, we find our precious Lord, and in him only grace and mercy can we detect. For those who have trusted in Jesus, we have the surest hope of all, magnificent, wondrous things he has done for us, because upon his precious name we did call. How can such love be, O God? Surely it exceeds heaven's highest height. And so for sending Jesus, we joyously applaud, because through him all things are new. Once again, all things are right. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, I would pray for all of the people out there that are stuck in these Seventh-day Adventist churches and these Messianic synagogues that put them in bindage back under the law, that you would have them just arbitrarily click on this sermon and to find right doctrine and to get out of that bondage and to put you first in all things, never to stray from your word and to always hold it in the highest, highest degree of honor. Lord, you have given us this precious gift and we just treat it so shamefully we, we put it off to the side. We let it gather dust. We don't tell it, other people about it. And yet it is the source of all wisdom for humanity. It is the source of all life for the weary soul. It is the source of light and contentment and joy. Help us to pursue this superior word all the days of our life and to just be willing to rest in you and not work our way to you, which will never happen. 
We do. We trust in you. We rest in you. And we give you all of our praise. Glorious are you, O God. We thank you for Jesus, our Lord. And in his name we pray. Amen. We get the instruction for the Lord's Supper directly from the Bible, where Paul wrote these words. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And he gave thanks over it with these words. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it and he said, take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper and he would have blessed us as well. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam borei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This to do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ.
Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we do pray for Mike and Roy's mother. Whatever's going on there, we would pray that your hand would be upon it and just help it get through to a satisfactory satisfactory resolution today. And Lord, we do pray for each person that's traveling and uh, that's not here today, that they would be all right, that they would be happy, content, and not come back sick, as so often happens when we travel on airplanes. And Lord, we do love you and we praise you. We thank you for the sign which was given to Israel, which is fulfilled in Christ, and that we now have rest. We have an assurance of Christ, our hope of glory, and that we are resting in him even right now and for all eternity because of what he did. We thank you for that. How marvelous you are to us, how good you are to us. We love you and we praise you and we exalt you and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.